People of God, let's open our copies of God's Word to the second psalm. As I mentioned this morning, I very, very rarely preach a topical sermon, Uh, but this is topical because I am trying to survey something of what the Bible has to say to us about God and government, the basics. And even though we are dealing with the basics, uh, please be alert uh, because it's a fire hydrant that is opening tonight. You know that text, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. So be ready for much. I'll probably have to cut and slash along as I go. But even though we are not expounding the second psalm, I want to begin there in our reading. Will you pray with me? Gracious God and Father in heaven, we are thankful that your government reigns over all that you have established Christ on your holy hill, that he rules and reigns over nations, presidents, kings, and tyrants, that the time is coming in which all nations will bow before him, all peoples will bow before him and acknowledge his lordship. But Father, we are called to do that now through your word, and we ask that we as your people will humbly do so, gladly do so, because we are saved by free and sovereign grace. Instruct our minds and our hearts, and as we open this theme this evening, we pray that you will show mercy to our nation, not because we deserve mercy, we do not but because you are a merciful God, and for the sake of your church, your people, we do plead with you that you will show mercy to our nation. In the name of Christ, the head and king of the church, the king of nations, we pray. Amen. Why don't we stand together with our copies of God's Word? The second psalm, this is the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, I've expounded Psalm 2 on many occasions, and I do not plan to do so tonight. As I have mentioned, rarely do I preach a topical sermon, only when I think circumstances call for it. 
Puritan preachers, you may know, in early America used to preach what were called election sermons, and I actually have one of those in my study if you would like to see. I don't mean a copy in a book, I mean an actual copy that was printed after the Puritan minister preached it. Sermons that were intended to remind voters and, of course, candidates that they vote and serve in light of the day of judgment. We cannot assume what we once did, that even Christians have a clear idea of civics. Now, let me make something very clear. As you know, I am a minister of the Word of God. That is my calling. But the Word has much to say about the state, and some of this I will lay before us tonight, the basics. But my calling is not statecraft, statecraft. Um, any more than it's medicine. I preach principles that doctors should apply in medicine. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I preach principles that lawyers should apply. I'm not a plumber. I preach principles and truths from God's Word that you should apply if that is your calling. But nonetheless, my calling is to expound the Word of God. Civil government, according to the Bible, is ordained by God, though the Bible does not prescribe its form. Arguably, a republic will most ensure the concerns of a Christian society, where that may exist. But a monarchy is biblically permissible as well. A socialistic state is so contrary to much that the Bible teaches as to be excluded from our discussion as a right form of government. The Christian faith can exist under any form of government, even the most repressive regimes. And we are privileged still to live in a country that has Christian foundations, though they are crumbling. I leave aside the question of whether the country was ever a Christian country. I only claim that there were Christian underpinnings. For example, the fact that there is a separation of powers with checks and balances was without question influenced by the Christian doctrine of original sin. Why not allow one branch of government to determine everything, not only because there is wisdom in many counselors, but because the human heart is corrupt and one branch of government determining everything would inevitably lead to tyranny. Let me begin, first of all, simply by pointing out that there are three classical passages on the relation of the church and government. There are many, but there are three. And because we're moving so quickly, I'm only mentioning these things. We will rarely turn to a passage. Romans 13, 1 through 7 is perhaps the most important in which Paul the Apostle teaches us that government is ordained by God, that we are to submit to governmental authority, pay taxes, and that the purpose of government is to punish evildoers and to reward those who do right. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17, which teaches similarly to Romans 13, but in a context in which Christians are to avoid bringing disrepute on the gospel because of disobedience is stressed. And then Matthew twenty-two seventeen, with its parallel in Mark 12 and in Luke 20, in which Jesus teaches that we are to pay taxes, that we are to render, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God those things that belong to God. So those are the three classical passages relating the church and government. Second thing, as we move along, is allow me now to point out the duties of a Christian in a republic, because we do live in a republic, at least ostensibly. 
And so let me list them quickly. A citizen should uphold the rights of others, not only his own. A citizen must not take the law into his own hands, but find redress for injuries in the law of the land. In other words, we do not riot in the streets or murder an evildoer or steal when stolen from as Christians. Citizens are obligated to pay taxes. Happy when the government spends rightly and well, but whether or not they do, we are obligated to pay taxes. Is there a right to revolt? Well, we'll address that a little later. Citizens are responsible to support the state in its enforcement of the law. For example, stopping a murder when it can be done, or a theft, or reporting a crime. To quote an old ethicist, in order to the stability and success of their government, citizens are bound as far as they can to render it virtuous and efficient. The best form of government must be unsuccessful if the administration of it be committed to weak and dishonest hands, which means by being yourself virtuous, you strengthen society. By electing virtuous leaders, you fulfill this duty. And by promoting intelligence and virtue, you fulfill this calling. I have already pointed out that we are responsible to vote, but we also are responsible, at least some of us, to be involved in statecraft and to run for public office. Passing remark, I never, never think that it is right for a minister of the gospel to do this. He has one all-consuming calling. His call is to preach the gospel, not to run for public office. And he transgresses that office when he runs for public office. But many Christians should run for office and serve in various branches of government. And we are responsible to pray for our government. Now, for that one, we will actually take a moment to turn uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and read what we are told there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first six verses. In 1 Timothy 2, the apostle says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now he begins by listing classes of people for whom we are to pray, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, that is, all sorts of people, all classes, because that's what he's dealing with, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so we are called as Christians to pray for our governmental officials, whether they are good governors or whether they are are not. To sum up then this theme of the duties of Christians in a republic, John Calvin in the Institutes argued that we essentially have two duties as Christians to magistrates. First, we are to think honorably of their office and esteem them because of their office. That may mean that personally they have very low character, but we are to honor their office. And second, 
we are required to obey. Romans 13.5, be subject for conscience sake. Romans 13 says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And then Calvin says, no command has been given except to obey and suffer. Those are the commands, to obey, and if necessary, as a church or a Christian, to suffer at the hands even of tyrants. Even unjust rulers must be obeyed. There are some exceptions. We're coming to that. But never does a private individual have the right to violent overthrow of unjust rulers. The third thing that I think needs to be said as we think of government and God and government, the basics, is that there are governmental abuses of powers that are abuses of powers that are contrary to the law of God. Now, we know that, but let me list some of them. It is unjust for government to take away private property arbitrarily, that is, for, the purposes, uh, for purposes not needed for the government. Um, again, my own read of this, as I have just investigated a bit, is that this may increasingly be a problem when the theory of eminent domain is enlarged to grease the wheels of business. I fail to see how this is just. Again, to quote an old ethicist again, when the tax assessed on each individual is not made proportionate as nearly as possible to the benefit which he receives from from society, that is an abuse of power. Imprisonment and hindrance to liberty without just cause is an abuse of power. It is wrong for a government to hinder the liberty of a person or group of persons due to race. For example, A southern city many years ago designed a highway through the heart of a very prosperous black community in order to stop their prosperity. Government should be colorblind. Justice is for all citizens. Unnecessary delay of trial. And if I may quote John Adams from one of his letters, 1776, John Adams says, the violation of religious liberty... He says, statesmen, my dear sir, may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. The only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue, and if this cannot be inspired into our people in a greater measure than they have it now, they may change their rulers and their forms of government, but they will not obtain a lasting liberty They will only exchange tyrants and tyrannies. Wrongfully taking the life of someone by abuse of power is contrary to what God has ordained for government. For example, if a police officer wrongly takes a life, he should not be protected from prosecution. It is equally wrong for citizens to paint all police officers with the same brush and to riot in the streets under the assumption that a police officer is guilty when it has not been proven. And it is wrong for government to allow, when it can prevent it, private property to be destroyed by protesters. Failing to protect citizens, their rights and their property, in other words. Taking the life of the weak and the unborn is clearly wrong and should not be permitted by government nor fostered by government. The support by the chief executive of our government for so-called same-sex marriage invites God's judgment. 
And these are examples of injustices by government. Even though we live in an age in which that which is just is now called unjust, and that which is unjust is called just. The standard is the word of God. In sum, no government has the right to set up laws in contradistinction to God's law, the Ten Commandments. No government has the right to autonomously determine what is just any more than does an individual. No government has the right to act unjustly. And so fourthly, that leads to this question, may citizens ever revolt with God's blessing, revolt against a government? Is revolution ever the right and appropriate thing to do? Now remember several things. The church and God's kingdom can grow under the most oppressive regime. The church in the New Testament period existed under the Roman regime. There was no legislative opportunity to redress errors of government with patient citizen involvement in most cases. There were votes for lesser magistrates in some places, but at least not in a way comparable to our own. But in our country, largely because of the Christian foundation and underpinning that I have mentioned earlier, we have the right and responsibility to involve ourselves in government and to work to redress wrongs and establish just laws. Our country was established in the throes of revolution from tyranny. Was it right or was it wrong? Well, at least let me say this. Let me remind you that Presbyterians were in the forefront of the American War for Independence. They had Scottish example of revolt in their country and bloodshed for the cause of liberty in their background. Calvinism argues that there is one absolute sovereign and that is the Lord himself. And Scottish Presbyterian writers were very influential in the American Revolution. For example, Samuel Rutherford, who was one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, great theologian, wrote a book called Lex Rex, Law is King, that was very influential with our founding fathers, and it was all about this question. No government has absolute authority over its citizens. When I was a boy, I somehow came across and had in my possession uh, an 1826 volume out of the set of George Bancroft's History of, uh, of America, History of the United States. And I will never forget reading along, I can, even, I can remember the page, I can remember the page, and I remember Bancroft saying, the fanatic for Calvinism was a fanatic for liberty. And the reason for that, of course, is the recognition that there is only one absolute sovereign, and that is not the government of our country. The government of our country was arguably based upon the influence of Presbyterian church government, especially in relation to the system of courts with checks and balances. And you might want to pick up C. Greg Singer's uh, great book, A Theological Interpretation of American History, on some occasion. Queen Elizabeth detested Presbytery because it opposed her view of absolute monarchy, as did King James. In 1775, the Mecklenburg Declaration, we're talking about Mecklenburg County in North Carolina, the Mecklenburg Declaration forthrightly dissolved all political bonds with the mother country. 
The first to raise their voices against British tyranny were Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. John Witherspoon, Scottish Presbyterian minister and president of Princeton, was incredibly influential in the time of the Declaration of Independence and with the organization of our government after the war with Britain. Now, that doesn't make it right when I say Presbyterians were greatly involved, but you can see that it was not something arbitrary. They had this great concern for the sovereignty of God over even the government of our country. So when may revolt be justified? Well, never, ever, by an individual is violent revolution the right thing to do. When government abdicates its responsibilities to its subjects, to its people, Christians sometimes must refuse to obey. When forbidden to preach the gospel, we must always refuse to obey. Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. But no individual or group of citizens has the right to bloody revolution on his own. The church in particular is called to patiently bear up under wrong done to us by the state, though in our culture we may use every proper means in our system to protest it. If a government becomes incapable of fulfilling its duties and becomes totally despotic, it may be our, not the church's duty as an institution, but citizens' duty to revolt It is criminal and wrong to incite insurrection. So when then might it be right? And I say this very tentatively, very carefully, only when led by lesser magistrates. That was the position of our Presbyterian forefathers. Only when led by lesser magistrates may it in rare circumstances be right for a Christian to participate in revolt against the government. That was the situation in the American War for Independence. That was the case when Parliament opposed King Charles I. And it was that Parliament, of course, who called the Westminster Assembly together where was written our Westminster Confession and Catechisms. Led by lesser magistrates, Parliament opposing the tyranny of the king, not individuals leading insurrection. Well, fifthly, let me make a few comments about our confession of faith and the so-called two kingdoms. Now, this would take a long time to deal with, so let me mention only a few things about chapter 23 of our confession. That was written during the English Civil War. The assembly thought the war necessary for self-defense and for the preservation of liberty. And the confession argues, among other things, these, these positions. It argues that God has ordained government as the Lord of all the world. He is the Lord of all governments. Human rulers are under his authority. Human governments are required to promote the glory of the triune God and promote the common good of people and to exercise the power of the sword to punish wrongdoers, contrary to the view of the Anabaptists. It argued for the involvement of government as a legitimate calling for the Christian and that God imposes limits on civil government and is to provide an atmosphere that is conducive to the preaching of the gospel. But today, some of you know we're hearing a great deal about the two kingdoms. Now, I mentioned this only in passing. Once when we spoke of the two kingdoms, 
we only meant that Christians are both citizens of heaven and of the earthly nations where they may live. Citizenship in heaven always taking precedence. What it has come to mean with some people in some circles is that there is a dichotomy between these ideas and that we should actually promote the secularization of the state. For some, that even means not sending our children to Christian schools and so forth. Now, I think that both the newer form of the two kingdoms idea and the idea of transformationism, that the church's responsibility is to transform society, I think both of those are terribly wrong. And we should make a very clear distinction between the role of the church as an institution and that of the Christian. The church, except on rare occasion by way of humble petition, to use confessional language, should not be involved in political issues. The church institutionally should not be involved in political issues. I did not say that the church should not address moral issues that relate to politics. We do have that obligation as we expound Scripture and preach the Word. But it is not the church's right to have a nation's flag in its worship space because this space represents to all who come here God's kingdom, which is universal. Not the church in America, not a Chinese church, not a British church, but God's church, Christ's church. It is not right to tell our people, I mean for the minister to tell our people, for the elders to tell the people of our congregation, it is not right to tell people for whom to vote or even to give out voters' guides. It is not the church's calling. It may be many Christians' responsibility to do such things as promoting candidates and giving out voters' guides. What I advocate is what has been historically called the spirituality of the church. That is, the head and king of the church, Jesus Christ, has given to us the responsibility as a church of worship, preaching, nurturing our members, and missions. We do not have marching orders from the head and king of the church to involve ourselves as an institution in political affairs. But then, those who are in the church, who are nurtured and who are maturing, should be involved in political issues, but not the church institutionally. Now, sixthly, what about voting? And especially in the present atmosphere in which we find ourselves in our nation, because the question has been coming to me a great deal. Well, another difference of, um, from the first century. Paul was a Roman citizen, but he, he could say nothing about uh, which Caesar he would like to see in office. He didn't have that privilege. But every Christian here does have that privilege of involvement. Every Christian is responsible to take his Christian principles and to make use of them in the voting booth, and we may not dichotomize and say, here are my Christian views and here are my political views. Now today, many government officials wish to define freedom of religion simply as freedom of worship. And if you're listening for the past several years, 
when certain political leaders have spoken about freedom of religion, they substitute for freedom of religion, freedom of worship. And that's because they really don't care what you do in these walls. What they care is that you not take your Christian viewpoint out into the public square. True Christians cannot put their faith in one box and life in another. Never in this world of the already and not yet will we have perfect choices. But sometimes we may have very imperfect choices. A statesman, I think it was Adams who said this, a statesman makes decisions in view of the day of judgment. How many of our candidates, if that is a definition of statesmanship, how many of our candidates do you think are statesmen? Do you seriously think that most people in government, though there are some, that most people who are governmental officials make their daily decisions about their calling in light of the day of judgment that is coming? But what if the choices are so egregiously bad? And again, I'm thinking of the questions that have been asked of me lately. So bad as to make it difficult to know how to vote. Well, I'll tell you what I do, if it's a help to you, just for what it's worth. What I do is to look at the party platform. I look at those who may surround a bad candidate, because wise people around a bad candidate might make an influence, may have an influence on him. I look at those who surround him then. I choose the candidate that I think will most oppose abortion, and I cast my vote for the candidate that I think is more likely to appoint sound Supreme Court justices. But that's my conscience before the Lord. You must obey your conscience, and it is never right to go against your conscience, never Now, sometimes our consciences are not biblically informed, and they should be biblically informed and corrected, but nonetheless, it is never right to go against your conscience. And if you simply cannot in good conscience vote for a candidate, then realizing that your non-vote will benefit one candidate or the other, you may have to write in Queen Victoria or Mickey Mouse, or somebody. The point is, do what you do. Cast your vote in light of the judgment day. Our voting is not exempt from the great assize. On that day, the Lord will not say, well, there was one area in which no judgment will take place, and that's what you did in the voting booth. No, not at all. And so do the responsible thing and trust God and his sovereignty. Our trust is not in princes. Which leads me to a seventh thing that I want to mention. Christ's kingship over the nations. Now we've seen it here in the second psalm, haven't we? And did you realize we just sang the second psalm before reading it? From an old 16th century beautiful tune Christ is king over the church, but he's also king over the nations. I'm espousing a viewpoint that is almost shocking to Americans today. It would not have been to former generations, but it is today. 
that Christ is not only head and king of the church, Christ is head and king over the nations. The state has duties to Christ whether the state acknowledges those duties or not. That means kings, presidents, legislators, and courts are responsible to bend the knee and to acknowledge Christ whether they will or not. Oh, the day is coming when they will, but nations are responsible to do so now. I don't say that will happen often in history. On rare occasions it has, but I do say that it is the obligation of the princes of this world to bow to Christ. It is wrong for the church to tell people for whom they should vote. It is right for the church to say to, for example, our president, respectfully because of his office, Mr. President, you will give an account to God for the decisions that you have made. You will give an account to God for promoting abortion on demand. You will give an account to God for promoting so-called same-sex marriage and for helping to destroy religious liberty in the land. That is a right and appropriate thing for the church to say. And the church must be careful, however, to follow her Lord's command to keep first things first and to preach the gospel. Only through the preaching of the gospel will hearts be changed. And if God is pleased to do so, to change our nation through those who are regenerated and converted by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church then has a responsibility at times to say to government leaders, the Psalms repeatedly call upon the nations to praise the Lord. Even though the great fulfillment of this is in the future, yet you are responsible to do so now rebelling against the Lord, setting up laws contrary to his commandments, brings the nation into peril and calls for the judgment of God. Psalm 2 makes that plain. It was cited by the early church in Acts chapter 4 in a prayer meeting. Herod Agrippa, who killed James, was struck dead by God. Paul addressed Governor Felix and Festus and Agrippa. He would address Caesar or his representative in Rome before being put to death. Christ is king over the nations. He will judge the nations. He calls upon the nations to submit to him just as he calls upon you and me to submit to him. Of the church we read in Isaiah forty-nine twenty-three: Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens their nursing mothers. Those who wait for me shall not be ashamed. Any nation that claims to hold human rights with no basis in the word of God and God's transcendent character and greatness will not hold those rights rightly for long. For example, when government officials believe that man was created as God's image bearer, that will have an impact on issues such as abortion and euthanasia. When government officials do not believe that man was created as God's image bearer, that will have an impact on abortion and euthanasia. It's all religious to the core. Don't let them say, don't bring your religion into this. Everyone is religious. Religious to the core. It's either truth or it's error. But think of the second psalm. 
Or Psalm 22, verse 8, that calls our Savior the governor of the nations. Or Daniel 7, 14, and there was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion. Or Revelation 21, that speaks of the glory of the nations entering the new Jerusalem. Or Jeremiah 10, 6 and 7, that speak of the Lord as the king of nations. Or Revelation 17, 14, Lord of lords, king of kings. Revelation 19, 16, king of kings and Lord of lords. That's who he is. Now, I can't say much more on this because of time, and it would require a series to do, it, to do so. But let me recommend a book to you. And it's by one of our Presbyterian fathers, William Symington. It is called Messiah the Prince. Messiah the Prince. It's in print. It's published by the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, the same group of which Rosaria Butterfield is a member, and where her husband pastors. It is that same denomination. By the way, passing remark, that denomination biblically opposed slavery, and by 1800, I think it was, required that there be no church member, no one allowed into church membership that owned slaves. Their argument was totally biblical. It had nothing to do with the spirit of the age. That should interest you. But the basic principle of Symington's book is this. Let me give you a sentence. If it is admitted that the Messiah is invested with dominion over the nations toward which in consequence of such investment he performs the acts of administration of which we have been speaking, it follows as a natural and unavoidable inference that there are duties which the nations owe to the mediator. Now again, whether or not this happens in our lifetime or often in history is beside the point. Governors owe Christ obeisance now. They will give it someday. Which leads me to an eighth point. Calvinistic Presbyterians and government. Now you can do a lot of good reading on this, so let me give you just a few hints and directions, not with books, but just historical references. It's probably important that you realize that Presbyterians have historically held up the crown rights of Jesus in the church, but also in the state. Who was it that stood up to the oppression of the French regime persecuting the church? Calvinistic Presbyterians. Who stood up to Spanish tyranny in the Netherlands? Hmm? Calvinistic Presbyterians, Reformed people. Who stood up to Mary, Queen of Scots? Calvinistic Presbyterians. Who stood up to tyranny in Scotland? Calvinistic Presbyterians, the Covenanters. Let the church preach the gospel, but let no Christian dichotomize between his faith in private and his public duty. We do not give enough attention to the kingly office of Christ, whether in the church, over our lives, or over the nations. Yes, church and state have distinct spheres and distinct objects. But let me commend to you an article by A.A. A. Hodge, 
a name that should be familiar to you, the, the son of Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, also a professor at Old Princeton Seminary. This is before in the 1920s when it went liberal. A.A. Hodge argues the character of the state will be determined by the people who constitute it. And he had the foresight to say, and I'm quoting him, I am as sure as I am of the fact of Christ's reign that a comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion, as is now commonly proposed, will prove the most appalling enginery for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and anti-social nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which this sin-rent world has ever seen. Hodge argued that the safety of the state can only be secured by the citizens that are loyal to Christ and subject to his law. And when this does not happen, and there are more and more in government who are far, 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 far from Christ, and far, far removed from his, the teaching of his word, when this does not happen, the church can expect persecution to varying degrees. And I think, unless God intervene, that's certainly where we're headed. Now let two of our fathers encourage us here. A.A. Hodge again, who says, he orders, the Lord orders, every political and social event and the entire evolution of civilization and associated human activity to the accomplishment of his supreme end. And at the close, every tribe and people and tongue shall stand to be judged before his throne and to have its destiny fixed by his decree. Now be encouraged by that, no matter where our country goes. And then John Calvin at the end of the Institutes. You might remember the last section of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Maybe you've read the Institutes, but you haven't gotten that far. So go to the end. The last section deals with the church and government and these issues. And Calvin says, now remember, this is a time of great, of great persecution. Uh, ministers would be trained in Geneva and then would be sent on, on missions in uh, France. And when they receive their, what we would call their Master of Divinity degree today, uh, they, would be, they would say they've received their hanging degree because they thought when they went to France they might live a few weeks or months at most. So at the end of the Institutes, Calvin said, let us comfort ourselves with the thought that we are rendering that obedience which the Lord requires when we suffer anything rather than turn aside from piety. Suffer anything but turn aside from piety. And that our courage may not grow faint, Paul pricks us with another goad that we have been redeemed by Christ at so great a price as our redemption cost him, so that we should not enslave ourselves to the wicked desires of men, much less be subject to their impiety. So, let this help you to act responsibly as a Christian who is a citizen of heaven, but also a citizen of this country. But also, allow it to take the pressure off 
from feeling too responsible. Do you see what I mean? Do you follow what I'm saying? The Lord reigns. The kings of the earth that rise up will be broken by him as a potter's vessel. God is God, and he really is in charge of the kings, presidents, parliaments, legislators, and tyrants of the earth. Now let's read this second psalm again, may we? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.